to the BCP Proper's Podcast, a show about the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector of Christ Church in South Bend, Indiana, and we're a member of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. So welcome back, and welcome back to Advent. This coming Sunday is the second Sunday in Advent, and I have to say it's the Sunday perhaps with the best collect for the day out of the whole year. Certainly the collect that has enjoyed the widest use among other denominations— And that collect is all about the scriptures. And so this Sunday has been colloquially referred to as Bible Sunday uh, because of the topic of the collect. But I think we'll see that it's Bible Sunday, and it's also Apocalypse Sunday, because the gospel reading is about judgment, end times, catastrophe— And we'll see how these two themes come together uh, through the epistle. The knowledge of our Lord's coming, the events of the second advent, might strike fear and terror into you. But with the knowledge of God's scriptures, this event actually provides us great hope. So it's a Bible Sunday, it's an Apocalypse Sunday, and it's a Hope Sunday. So here's that great collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which Thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you can see right away this collect is about the Scriptures. The Lord caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Now that is a direct reference from Romans 15, which will be the epistle reading. Uh, We are to be encouraged by the fact that the Scriptures— and when Romans is talking about them, it's talking about the Old Testament, uh, they were written for us. Paul says much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. The things that happened to our fathers in the earlier times were written for our instruction. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that great passage about the Bible, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God so that uh, the man of God might be complete. We might have uh, that training and admonition, the correction, uh, the training in godliness and righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. So that's what the Scriptures are for. That's why God had them to be written in the first place. That's really important. They're not merely an oral tradition. They're not even really just history, but rather they were for the church— with a particular view to the Christian era, those people who would understand all scriptures in light of the work of the Messiah. Since that's what God intended, we then are praying that he would make the word effective. And so the Collect says, grant that we may hear them. Important for Anglicans, the scriptures are firstly to be heard. 
which is why our services have so much reading of Scripture, lengthy passages in the morning and evening prayer, and it's important not to simply focus on reading along as they're reading to you, but actually to sit and hear, to listen. Then we are to read them, mark them, means to identify, to to pay attention to how it's working, to take notice of them, learn them by repeated meditation, repetition, uh, understanding, and then finally, inwardly digest them. What a great expression. And inwardly digest, that's what I've heard in so many other churches, even non-Anglican ones. It's evidence that this prayer uh, has gotten out into the broader Christian world, part of the larger heritage of the church. Inwardly digesting the Word comes from biblical uh, passages like Ezekiel, when he's told to eat the scroll, or in uh, Proverbs, we're told the Word of God is sweet like honey. So as we hear with our ears, we want to inwardly digest the Word, and the Word gets in us. It becomes part of us so that our heart and our soul is filled with God's Word. So that's the first half of the collect, praising the Scriptures, asking God to put the Scripture in our hearts. And then the second half tells us what will happen if, if this comes to pass. What will be the result? By patience and comfort of that holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. So knowing the scriptures, knowing how God has worked in history with his people, will allow us to be patient and to have comfort as we look forward to the blessed hope, the final coming of Christ, the resurrection, the last judgment. So all of those Advent themes about the end times, the apocalyptic events, those can fill us with hope because we know the Scriptures. We can be patient while we undergo any trials, any sufferings. We can have comfort because we know what is happening, what God's goal is, what the end result will be. And we know this because we've studied the Scriptures. We've learned how God works because we've seen what He has done in the past. You think of all the ways He delivered Israel, and weren't they accompanied by signs and wonders, even terror? Think about God delivering Noah. And so, yes, there will be great shakeups, even in the Christian era. There will be... Uh, a shaking of the heavens, the Scripture tells us, will be filled with dread. But if we know the Scriptures, we know what's really happening, that this is our salvation. And so we can have comfort, and this is hope. Now, the epistle reading is from Romans 15, starts at verse 4 through 13. Cramer received these readings from the earlier uh, medieval lectionaries, by the way. Last week, we talked about how he kept uh, the first part and then extended the readings. Uh, for this week, uh, I don't believe he changed the readings at all. But the collect was original. That was a composition he put together, uh, being inspired by the readings. So the first reading of the epistle, Romans 15, verses 4 through 13, it says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, 
that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So those are all the themes that appear in the Collect right there. The Scriptures are written for us, so with patience and comfort we might have hope. You notice even the term Scriptures, things written before, for us. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now, isn't this interesting? With that encouragement that the Scriptures give us patience and hope, now we're told to, to treat each other well. Uh, receive one another as Christ received us. Because, of course, in the early church, there are new people flocking in, different kinds of people, and it would be hard to go through trials and shake-ups with a bunch of new people and a bunch of different kinds of people. And the rest of this passage goes into that, Jew and Gentile relationships. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. So, Gentiles as an emphasis here, Jew and Gentile relationship. And notice how Paul is grounding his teaching about Jew and Gentile with references from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, referring to the Psalms, referring to Isaiah, that this was always part of the plan. The Gentiles were going to be brought in so that they might glorify God. This is not uh, to the contrary of the Jews. The promises to the fathers are confirmed. That's an argument Paul has already spent quite a bit of time on in Romans 11. Uh, God has not cast away the Jewish people. There still is a, a hope for them. But it's going to also include Gentiles, and they're all going to be together glorifying God. Now, in the early church, this would have been very, very obvious. The apostles are all Jews, the first converts are mostly Jews, but quickly Gentiles are coming in, and it won't be long before there are more Gentiles than there are Jews. So get along with one another. And the New Testament is filled with all of the challenges. What role does circumcision play now? Food laws, Jewish identity. Uh, how do we balance that so we don't enforce it on the Gentiles? At the same time, the Gentiles are not to despise the Jews who continue it. That would be hard. It would be hard to live in that kind of a world, and you would need to receive one another with grace understanding that that's how Jesus received us. And this is all happening during a time of intense persecution. Now, I think this is really interesting in light of a lot of current political conversations, even uh, political theology conversations. There's been a real 
emphasis on uh, national solidarity, nationalism, uh, nervousness about diversity. And it is true throughout uh, the ages, uh, antiquity and the Middle Ages, you'll see a lot of writings about the dangers of diversity being uh, causing confusion, distraction, uh, diluting the distinctives. Uh, and so we want to be very careful that we manage that in the right way. But I think here, this passage is really important to say that there really is no biblical ground to say that you must preserve uh, strict ethnic lines, uh, solidarity, uh, dis dis distinction, and segregation. That was not what the first century church was like. And you can say, oh, well, but that was a spiritual unity. It didn't implicate the social-political arrangements necessarily. Except here we we have it. They're in the same church. Paul writing the letter to these people, you've got a diverse congregation here in a highly significant way. And if that model replicated, you would have a big-time social change at work. Yes, slow and steady. Yes, it's not a revolutionary paradigm. We're not saying to overthrow the legal order or any of that sort of thing. But nevertheless, this is a big change. This is a big shakeup. Jews and Gentiles living together, worshiping together, becoming this tight brotherhood. After all, the brethren, the people of God, and they're weathering persecution from the outside— and what kind of outside is this? Well, they're weathering persecution from Jews and from Gentiles. So here we have their Christianity is what's holding them together, even in the face of persecution from their kinsmen according to the flesh. That's hard. It's because of the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and they've got to hang together. They've got to receive one another in charity, with patience, and know that all of the judgment that's happening, all of the shakeup is working for their good, will be their deliverance. That's the point of Paul's writing here. And they need to know the scriptures to have a solid grounding in that. Know the story of God, how he's worked in the past, and know that what's happening now is no great strange twist, no surprise, but what's been predicted all along. So now the gospel reading comes from St. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 33. Now this is a very Adventy theme here, the end of the world, all of the things come crashing down. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, isn't that amazing? Signs in the sun, the moon, distress among the nations on earth. Even the waves are roaring. Men are terrified and afraid. 
the powers of heaven shall be shaken. We see that in the Hebrews as well. Uh, the Even the heavens are shaken. The only thing that remains is the kingdom of God. This imagery of signs and the sun, the moon, the stars, it comes from the prophets, from Joel, from Isaiah, from other places. Uh, the stars will fall, the sun will be darkened, will turn to blood. Now, is this meant to be literal? Uh, probably not exactly. I'm sure there are certain connections. You know, when Christ was crucified, the sun went dark, so that's a direct fulfillment. Um, the Star of Bethlehem, perhaps, similarly uh, a case of that. This is also a classical rhetorical way of speaking of changes in politics and the world order. Uh, it shows up in Shakespeare's version of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's wife is troubled by seeing a comet or a falling star. Uh, and this was understood that there was some relationship between the heavens and authority. Even in Genesis, think of Joseph's dream. Uh, yes, he has the one about the corn stalks bowing down, but he also has a dream where the sun, the moon, and the stars all bow down to him. And he tells it to his father, and his father's quite upset. He says, your father and your mother are going to bow down to you and all of your brothers. So the sun is the father, the moon is the mother, and so forth. So shaking up in the heavens, uh, yes, it's got literal connections, but more important than that, it's about changes in order, authority. And so Jesus here is predicting perhaps the end of the world perhaps near judgment on Jerusalem, perhaps the transformation between the old covenant to the new, but probably a little bit of all three. That's what makes this passage so challenging. There's clearly a near-term political judgment that he has in view, and then there's also a spiritual message as well. Men are going to be terrified, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. The Son of Man coming in a cloud, that's a reference to Daniel uh, chapter 9, I believe it is, the vision of one like the Son of Man. And what's interesting in the Daniel vision is the Son of Man is coming in the clouds, but he's going to the Ancient of Days. So the motion is, is really an upward motion and towards the figure identified with God, the Son of Man as Messiah going before God in order to then receive a kingdom. And so the vision of the Son of Man is fascinating because it's showing what the work of the Messiah will be. It's in Daniel 9. It's actually Daniel 7. I'll read um, just a portion of that here. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, that passage is very important because it brings in Jesus' prophecy here into its full picture, and it also shows the relevant connection to the epistle reading. All nations and all languages, they're all going to be together in this kingdom that can't be shaken while all the other kingdoms are. The one like the Son of Man, well, Jesus identifies himself as the one like the Son of Man. Later at his trial, he'll say, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. And the people are outraged because they interpret that to be a claim by Jesus about himself and about deity, that he'll be equal to God in that way. So Jesus mm -hmm. is the Son of Man. He will go before the Ancient of Days, that's a little tricky theologically. You could say the Son going to the Father and the Trinity. I think it's probably even more accurate to say the two-natured Messiah, both God and man, in the one person of Christ, moving to the whole Godhead. Uh, so it's the, the Messiah in his composite person approaching the Trinity. And we'll see that in Revelation with those throne room visions, the Lamb going before God. And then everything in Revelation that follows from that is the response. Uh, it's God giving to the Lamb all that authority and power, shaking up the kingdoms. So this prophecy is going to kick off. It's going to begin when Jesus goes to heaven in the clouds, taking him up, the ascension, and then it's going to start to unfold after that. Back to Luke now, Jesus says, When these things come to pass, look up your redemption draweth nigh. And that's really important. Why can we have comfort? Why can we have hope with all of this judgment? Because it means our redemption is close. You see, God brings judgment and salvation, and frequently in the scriptures they happen in and through the same event. That's why we need to know the scriptures. And so this passage from Luke 21, it, it is an end times passage, no doubt about it. It's an apocalyptic passage, but it's a passage that should give us hope and comfort. If we see things like this happening, it means Jesus reigns. He's the king on the throne. Jesus is receiving the power and authority from God, and his kingdom will never be shaken. It will be forever. Okay, well now let's talk about the Old Testament readings. Each Sunday in the 1662 BCP, there are proper first lessons for morning and evening prayer. And the first lessons always come from uh, the Old Testament, uh, at least on Sundays, they're always from the Old Testament. The first lesson for morning prayer comes from Isaiah chapter 5. This is the song of the vineyard. 
And then the first lesson for Evensong comes from Isaiah 24. So we're continuing our survey through Isaiah. That's going to happen in Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And it's mostly consecutive, but you can see there the skipping over certain passages, the selective survey. Uh, the BCP wants us to read the opening chapters of Isaiah 1 and 2, and then it moves to chapter 5. Now, chapter 5, I think, is a very vivid, very strong passage about God's relationship to his covenant people. It begins like this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So often in the scriptures, the people of God are combined, uh, or sorry, are compared to a vineyard. They're a tree, a plant, they have fruit. And here, God's beloved has a vineyard. And Isaiah 5 goes through all of the preparation. The beloved dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted the choice vines, he put a watchtower in the midst. But what happened to this vineyard? He looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. The vineyard is rebellious. It's not doing what it ought. And so here in Isaiah 5, we have something of a lawsuit brought against the vineyard. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So the beloved is calling the people and saying, look, judge, I did what was right and the vineyard is at fault. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it should be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Judgment. And here's the explanation then. He really talking about verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God's people were unfaithful. They sinned, they committed idolatry. They acted as if they weren't God's people. And so now they're going to be judged. Verse 25 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. God brings judgment even against his own people. 
because of their sin and infidelity. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. This is why the nations are allowed to have victory over Israel with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and the Persians. Isaiah himself is prophesying this towards the end of the kingdom era, but but not the very end. There'll be a, a few more generations to come before that happens. He's predicting what's going to happen. And he's explaining that it's not only Gentiles, but it's actually God at work. But then it ends with some consolation, perhaps, though challenging one. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. Now, is that good or bad? <laughs> uh, if you're Israel, it may still be bad news. But we know that there's going to be an interpretation given later that these nations are also going to be God's workers, and he's going to use his purposes to redeem them as well. So we want to combine this reading with what we heard in Romans with Paul's interpretation, uh, the root of Jesse for also the Gentiles. And we start to see how this ties together. God brings judgment on his people for their sins, and this involves the Gentile invaders who are going to work some fairly awful things from the human vantage point. The people of Israel will suffer at their hands. But because of this event, God will knit Jew and Gentile together, actually start planting his word in both to then bring about his redemptive work. So even though the sun has turned dark and the land is distressful, even though the sinners will face judgment, we're also starting to see how God's working to bring about salvation. And so then let's go to Isaiah 24, the first lesson for evening prayer, evensong. Now we have judgment on the whole earth, not just Israel, but everywhere. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. The people, the priest, the slave, the master, the maid, the mistress, the buyer, the seller, the lender, the borrower, the creditor, the debtor, all rank of people here. The earth shall be utterly emptied, utterly plundered. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes. The wasted city is broken down. Every house shut up so that none can enter. It's as if the harvest has come and chopped everything down, and now you have, uh, like we see all across Indiana right now, those empty cornfields with the remnants of the stalk, but nothing else. And yet, amazingly here, verse 14, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west, therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
from the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. That's interesting. In the midst of this desolation and judgment, everyone's praising God. Perhaps a lesson about God's sovereignty. Even those who are condemned and judged must praise him. But perhaps also teaching us again, as we mentioned, God will use this to bring about his redemptive purposes. It even says that God will punish the host of heaven. Erring angels, perhaps, and the kings of earth. They are gathered together as prisoners in a pit. The moon is confounded and the sun is ashamed. Judgment on all evil in heaven and on earth against all wicked people. Now, this is a terror for those evil people, those sinners. And so there should be an element of penitence, of introspection when we hear this. We be able to stand in the judgment? And of course the answer is no, not on our own merits. So we have to cry out for forgiveness and mercy. We have to ask that God would redeem us and not leave us condemned. But we should remember that this is ultimately so that God might establish his justice, his righteousness. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That's how the chapter ends. Now, if you look forward in Isaiah, which we'll read next week, there will be prophecies of salvation, redemption, the end of death, the bringing about of peace. All that's going to come. So we, we don't want to just stop the reading here and not come back to it. But for the second week of Advent, it, it does end at 24, leaving you with that puzzle. How is this comfort? How do we get hope from this? And we do have to wrestle with that. If we are God's enemies, this won't be helpful. This will not be comforting. This will be our doom. But if we are the true people of God, if we put our trust in him, then we understand that this is actually how he brings about our deliverance. He fights for us. And it comes together in Christ. We won't get that unless we know the scriptures. We've got to study learn, inwardly digest them so that we can see how God works over time. And so the second week of Advent, Bible Sunday, Apocalypse Sunday, that God's judgment is his salvation for his people, and we can know this and have hope as we study his scriptures. Well, thanks for listening. My name is Stephen Wedgworth, pastor of Christ Church here in South Bend, Indiana. And we'll be back again next week to continue our study through Advent and our study through the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Until then, have a great week. Blessed Advent season.